have events on Sunday. Uh, the second one is at 11 o'clock, and it's our worship service, and we invite, invite you to stay and attend that one. Uh, we get started with the Light the Chalice. this time together by lighting this chalice and opening our hearts to one another and to the world. process, for those of you who might be new, is a 45-minute presentation, 30 minutes of questions and answers. Now, my name is Bill Hall, and I'll manage the question and answer part of this. Uh, Dan is on his own uh, on his presentation. Uh, in managing uh, the, the forum, uh, it's my job to manage the talking and the time. Uh, so in managing the talking, uh, if you get to the point to where you're repeating yourself, making good points, uh, I will indicate to you that, that you've done a good job by raising one hand and a thumbs up, and that's an indication for you to bring your comments to a close so somebody else can have a chance to speak. So one of the things we should do this morning is turn our cell phones off. So with that, uh, let me introduce our guest this morning. Dan Bigley was blinded by a grizzly bear attack and survived to co-write the best-selling book, Beyond the Bear, with Deborah McKinney. Before the bear, he worked with severely emotionally disturbed children, taking them on recreational outings for Alaska Children's Services. After the bear, he earned a master's degree in social work from UAA. Now Dan travels the country as an inspirational speaker, is the director of therapeutic foster care for Denali Family Services, and received a 2008 Alaskan of the Year Award by the Governor's Committee on Employment and Rehabilitation for People with Disabilities. He's also a talented musician and a leader of the Dan Bigley Band, living with his wife Amber and two children in Anchorage. So please join me in welcoming Dan Bigley. So when 
was asked to do this when I was thinking about social justice and, you know, how my story uh, relates to social justice. And for me, you know, my story about how I moved beyond the bear is not a story about an individual uh, who overcame the odds uh, to find happiness or success. It's really, to me, a story about community and how human beings can come together and support one another in times of need. It's about how, given the right environmental conditions, uh, that people and or communities can not just survive horrific events, but actually thrive in the most unlikely and precarious of situations. So as I think of social justice, I'm reminded that our strength as human beings is not our independence, but rather our interdependence. The strength is not the individual thread, but rather the interwoven fabric that we call community. My story, Beyond the Bear, is a story about how the last thing I ever saw was the bear that took my eyes. It was July 14, 2003. And the irony in what makes my story, I think, so compelling to so many, myself, the least of which, is that just the very day before I met the bear, uh, a very cute woman from Minnesota named Amber and I had moved our relationship forward. Uh, we had one of those nights where we stayed up in, into the night talking. And even though I knew I was just getting to know this person for the first time, I was just left with this feeling that this was somebody that I wanted to And so it goes that in the morning, my friend John shows up because it was time for us to go fishing. And the last thing I said to Amber as I gave her a hug and said my goodbyes was, I'll call you when I get off the river. But I didn't realize, and neither did she, of course, that at that time I would have less than 12 hours to see. It was one of those beautiful Alaskan summer days where it was warm enough to have short sleeve shirts on, but just enough breeze to keep the mosquitoes down. And the fish were in the river. You know, it's one of those uh, Alaskan summer days that gives all of us Alaskans winter amnesia and keeps us living here year after year and winter after winter. <laughs> and we had, it was, it was, the fishing was good. It was a little slow, but late in the evening, you know, we had managed to catch our fish and, you know, we packed up our bags there at the confluence of the Kenai and Russian rivers and, and made the 20 trailhead there at the Rush River Campground, the Greater Trailhead. And pretty much at the bottom of the stairs leading up to the trailhead, uh, my dog Maya that was with my buddy John and I lets out a little growl, just enough to make me look up and wonder what it was that she saw. And sure enough, there on the trail, about 30 feet in front of us, was a large brown bear. Up to that point in my life, as a backcountry wanderer, I'd had many a bear encounter before this one was very different. Very different than the time, for example, in Mammoth Lakes, California, I had been sleeping out under the stars and awoke in the night to something wet pressing against my face. And I sat up in my sleeping bag and turned to see a large black bear in camp. I can only imagine I must have just been smelled. So I stood up and my sleeping bag sort of falls to my ankles and I watch her in the full moonlight as she meanders through a meadow and disappears into the trees. That was sort of like a romantic encounter, I guess. <laughs> I was left, you know, feeling the wonder of nature. Or the time along the shores of Kluani Lake in Canada, where I'd seen, from the safety of my vehicle, 
large brown uh, grizzly bear uh, rolling around on his back like a playing dog and quite literally playing with a large six-foot section of log like you would expect to see from a circus bear. And we got to watch that for about 15 minutes. This encounter was very different, though. This, this bear, um, I guess to use a very bad joke, was having a bad bear day. turned to face us, was stomping her, her paws, jumping up and down her front paws. Her hair stood on end, huffing, puffing, growling. My friend John and I just stood close together and discussed quietly what the best course of action would be. And we decided the best thing would be to back away slowly and head further up, up river and take a different trail around to a different trailhead altogether and just give the bear all the space that she needed. And we were able to do that. We backed away and started up the river. And we had, once we were out of sight, we sort of picked up the pace and dropped our shoulders a little bit and started processing that crazy bear encounter we just had. When suddenly, in front of us on the trail, the alders started shaking vigorously. We couldn't see through the alders, but we could tell whatever was in them was large. So we figured we'd been cut off by the same bear. And anything, anybody who's been significant time in bear country knows that to be followed or cut off by a bear you just had an encounter with is not a good indicator of things to come. So immediately my heart starts pounding, stomach drops to my toes. We turn and start walking quickly back towards the, the trailhead, the closest place to other people in the safety of our vehicles. But in no more than 10 steps, the totally unimaginable happened. And that is with the shaking bushes now behind us, front of us on the trail, the bear comes ripping wildly around the corner at missile speed, and a moment was upon us. My dog Maya, who was in the front of the group, leaps off the trail to the left, and the bear swipes, didn't connect, but did not change direction. My friend John, who was directly in front of me, goes leaping off the trail to the right. He jumped with such force that he quite literally jumped clear out of both of his waiting boots, leaving both boots on the And it's in this moment, you know, just as in so many traumatic moments that humans experience, that the brain has interesting ways of coping with and dealing with and processing information. And one of those is that your sense of time can become very warped, and that's what happened to me. So what, what followed was no, no, happened in no more than just an instant. But to me, time slowed to nearly a standstill, so much so that I was able to just a thought or a couple thoughts, but an entire thought process in the moment that, that existed. And as the bear came closer and closer to me on the trail, her head grew bigger and bigger. Her eyes burned yellow with fury, her mouth agape. This would be the image that would burn itself into my psyche. It's one of the last things I would ever see with my eyes. Is the bear that would ultimately take them. It would become the source of many an intrusive thought and many a nightmare in the weeks, months, and years to come. We didn't realize it at the time, but in putting the pieces of the story together after the fact, what we now realize is that in the shaking bushes which were behind me were her cubs. And so without even realizing that there were cubs in the equation, we had put ourselves in the very situation that all Alaskans try so hard to avoid being in. And I, of course, 
so I leaped off the trail to the left. But unfortunately, before I'd even hit the ground, the bear had a hole in my leg and was pulling me out of the bushes. She then picked me up by my head and dragged me out into the alders. All I remember was the feeling of the trail, the dirt, grasses, roots, rocks, moving by underneath. And then I lost consciousness. And what followed was a sequence of losing consciousness and coming back to three or four times. Each time I would, I would, I would awake uh, back to consciousness, very aware of the presence and power of the bear as the mom continued. At one of these times where I was conscious, I heard my friend John call my name from a distance, and the mauling wasn't happening at the moment. It was my hope that he was with rescue, and I didn't know how far off the trail I'd been drugged. So I called for John, hoping that he would be able to locate me more quickly. But to the bear, who was just a short distance away, my calling for John was too much sign of life, and the bear returned and the mauling continued. The next time I awoke, something very bad had happened, and that was I'd been flipped over and was now laying face up, and the bear had either claw digging into either shoulder, her face directly over mine, and that's when she delivered what I refer to as the death blow, where she cocked her head sideways and bit down across my face from side to side, and then chewed. And when I woke up, the very first thing I became aware of was that the terror and the pain were all gone. It was almost peaceful. I was trying to figure out where I was and what was going on. I was looking around, but there was nothing to see. All there was was this brilliantly bright blue light, no shape or form, just this brilliantly bright blue light. And I realized that I was at this crossroads. It was a decision, and I had a choice to make. On one hand, there was the choice just to let go, and it was that easy. That's all I had to do was make the choice. And it was clear to me in that moment that that was the easy choice. And on the other hand, there was the choice fight to hold on, to fight for life. And it was clear to me in the moment that that was a very difficult choice to make, that I had no idea if I would survive, that I had no idea what kind of injuries I would endure, what kind of suffering might lie ahead. I certainly at that time had no idea that if I survived, I would be living the rest of my life completely blind. But what's interesting is that as soon as I realized I was at this decision point, an image comes into my mind, and it was an image of my mom from the from the waist up. It was like watching a home video, and there she was, just waving to me and smiling, a huge smile. In fact, it was probably the happiest I've ever seen my mom. She was glowing with radiance, and just the happiest could be, smiling and waving, smiling and waving. And it filled me, it filled me with a feeling Perhaps the only feeling in a moment like that that could make life worth fighting for. Clearly, I'm speaking about the feeling of love. And so my decision was made that I was going to fight for life, that I was going to fight for love. And I was given permission, it felt like, to, to linger in that place of the blue light to rest, to be energized before I had to return to my body at the Russian river.
that's sort of this classic dissociative, depersonalized experience that, you know, in my field, in mental health, you know, we talk a lot about, where at first I saw my body from overhead, and I looked down upon myself laying there on the forest floor, and then I woke up from within. And as a trained wilderness first responder, my first instinct was to assess my capacity for self-evacuation, but quickly I realized that was out of the cards. I seemed to have no control over any of my limbs. I could feel my waders filling with blood and blood pooling under my head. And I realized the only chance I had of surviving was to go to a place deep within and rest as best I could and wait for rescue to come and save every bit of energy to hold on to life. It would be about two hours before the volunteer EMTs would arrive from Cooper Landing about four hours before the helicopter would arrive, and about five hours before I would arrive at the Providence, Alaska Medical Center for definitive medical care. And it's no wonder in situations like this, like any wilderness emergency situation, that there's a direct correlation between the amount of time it takes to get a person from isolation back to other people. Things were very tenuous in that first two hours. I'm told that several times where I'd stopped breathing altogether, and right as they would go to initiate chest compressions, I would sort of gasp for air. It's also funny the things I remember thinking about, and I was told that I would ask questions to the people around me during this time. And one that I remember is I kept asking about my dog. Is my dog okay? I kept thinking about the keys to the work van in my pocket, and about how they had a field trip the next day. What were they going to do without a van? And most of all, I remember thinking, what is Amber going to think of me now? Now that I've gone out and got myself mauled by a bear. The last thing my friend Jeremy Anderson, who happened to be standing in the parking lot that evening, he was a fishing guide in the area, and he just happened to be there. As they loaded me into the ambulance to take me over to where the helicopter could land on the highway, he says, hang in there, bigly. We'll be out here fishing again before you know it. And at the time, I wasn't sure if I believed him or if he was just saying that to help me feel better. The ER doctor's report put it this way. Patient arrived at the ER in condition incompatible with life. Eyes, nose, forehead anatomy, unrecognizable. So it's no wonder that after completing that first 13-hour surgery where they couldn't even begin reconstruction at this point. All they could do was clear out saliva, dirt, debris, sew me clothes as best they could, and load me full of antibiotics because even if I managed to survive the initial trauma, the likelihood of lethal infection was extremely high. At this point, my brain had herniated down into my sinus cavity and was now exposed to the outer world, and it would remain as such for the following 12 days. So it's no wonder that the doctors told my family as they started to arrive, this has been a devastating attack. And we don't know if they're the praying type, but the only thing to do now is to wait and pray. It's not surprising that 12 days later, when I was awoken from a medically induced coma and told I would live the rest of my life blind, that I couldn't deal with that reality at that time. I just had to compartmentalize it, put it on the shelf. Later. 
there was so much to think about. You know, at that time, I, I'm not, my jaw was completely wired shut. I was breathing with the aid of a respirator through a tracheotomy. So I couldn't speak, couldn't smell, couldn't see. I was communicating by writing things down on a whiteboard, and I'll never forget uh, the first time that Amber came to visit me in the hospital room after coming out of a coma. She walks into my hospital room and kneels on the floor in front of me, puts her arms up on my, my knees. And I just remember thinking, you know, what, what words are there? said to me, Dan, you and I are a tribe of two. <laughs> because, as he re recalled, he was the only person he'd known about for that entire time to ever be completely, by, uh, completely blinded by a bear and live to tell about it. He went on to tell me about how after that, he'd gone on to graduate high school, then college, then a master's, and then after that, a PhD. About how he had married the love of his life, ironically a deaf woman, <laughs> with lots of interesting and fun stories about how they managed to get along with each other, about how they traveled the world and climbed the Eiffel Tower, been to the Galapagos Islands, climbed volcanoes, backpacked together, and he really 
really got my attention when he told me he still owned a fishing boat. <laughs> I said, huh, maybe this blind thing isn't going to be so bad after all. So what he did as a total stranger, just a member of our community, is he walked into my hospital room and he offered my family and I the most valuable resource we could have asked for in a moment like that. The resource. just a few days later, I was told that I could go outside for the first time. And so they, you know, put me in the wheelchair and wrapped my face up like a mummy. They loaded the IV poles and the oxygen tanks, and out I went. And Amber was there that day. And as we're sitting there getting some sunshine, I heard a voice. It was a very familiar voice, a voice I'd known pretty much everywhere I'd lived. So I turned and I wrote down to him and I said, it's a chicken. I was so happy to hear this bird, not just because it was a friend of mine from all over the place, um, but I think more importantly because I realized that this was something that I could still do as a blind person. I could still identify birds as a blind person. In fact, I look at that as the very first thing that I did completely for myself and by myself as a blind person. To me, this is an important aspect of the story because so much of how we progress in life, you know, if I look at where I've come, where I am today relative to where I was, I've come a long way. There's no question of that. But I didn't get there in huge strides. I didn't get there by making these enormous steps and having these huge accomplishments. I got there one small, tiny little success at a time, and it started right there with that chicken. That was the first success. The thing about having successes in life, no matter how small, is that you can build upon those and build upon those. And there are some things in life that you have to push yourself way outside of your comfort zone to find those successes to build upon. And yet, what's interesting, and I've spent a lot of time reflecting on this over the years, is that oftentimes to find those successes, you know, to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, you also have to be willing to expose yourself to the possibility of failing. And almost, I mean, by definition, to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, to be exposed to the possibility of failing, it's uncomfortable. Humans don't like to be exposed to that possibility of failing. And, and the irony, you know, the sort of unfortunate thing about that reality is that humans don't like to be uncomfortable. <laughs> and so, in our efforts to avoid being in these positions that are so uncomfortable, we oftentimes avoid the very experiences in life that offer us possibilities for growth and to find these little successes that can be built upon. So I've really learned and had to learn, I think, through being in the circumstances I've been in, where I was really forced to be outside of my comfort zone repeatedly for long periods of time, that actually, I don't, I'm not afraid of the possibility of failure. I've learned to embrace failure, and I've, I've adopted the attitude that if I'm not failing at least some of the time, I'm probably not pushing myself hard enough in life to grow and to become a better 
as a blind person, I really didn't have a choice. There, in, in order to function, in order to rehabilitate and move on, I was forced to push myself outside my comfort zone each and every day. And there were many failures along the way, such as the first time I would trip over a sleeping dog or accidentally climb the stairs. <laughs> many stories like that. Well, I'll digress for a brief second and just share probably one of my most cherished And that was a trip to the Alaska Club as a blind father. When I came my way back from the locker room proudly and found my locker, and as I'm getting dressed, I stopped and paused for a moment as I realized that my boxers were smaller than I remembered them being. Oh, yes. And then I reached in and I found the shoes. So I couldn't help but chuckle to myself as I imagined telling my wife this horrible story about my mishaps in the locker room. And I, and I laughed even harder yet when I imagined uh, the next poor lad uh, who was putting on his boxer shorts. And that moment when he stopped to reflect on the fact that his boxer shorts were strangely wetter than he remembered them being. <laughs> that was the other thing Lee Hagmeyer taught me. I digress. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> so it became clear shortly thereafter that I was going to need more surgeries than were available to me in Alaska. I had some stubborn wounds uh, that just kept reopening and reopening. So the problem was, was that five out of six arteries that carried uh, blood to the scalp had been either lacerated or totally severed. Uh, so I just didn't have enough blood flow. So I needed to head for California. I knew I was in no place to be in a new relationship, and nobody expected Amber to stay with me after what had happened, not after just one special night, myself the least of which. And so, as I left for California, Amber and I gave each other hugs and said our goodbyes and off I went. But I was fortunate to have Amber become a very close friend, and we'd keep in touch while I was in California about my progress, about my therapy. how I was doing overall. There was a time then, a, a few months later, where my brother had made a trip to Alaska. He returned to tell me, Dan, I just wanted to let you know I was just in Alaska, and it seems like Amber might be dating somebody. And outwardly, I was like, that's cool. Whereas inwardly, I was like, hmm. <laughs> it kind of hurt. And, and, I, and it surprised me, actually. I, I didn't expect to feel that way. Uh, because intellectually, I knew Yet, because it hurt, because it felt the way it did, I did. I played my smoothest move, my smoothest move, which was to immediately go to a phone and call her. And I was so glad when she answered the phone. And I, I said to her, I said, hey, Amber, I just want to let you know my brother just got back from Alaska. And, you know, it sounds like he might be dating somebody. And that's totally cool. That's all I had, you know. 
But uh, fortunately for me, you know, Amber's always been able to see right through everything I've ever said. And so she says back to me, she said, yeah, I am. But he's already getting really sick of how much I talk about you. <laughs> so once again, I'm filled with that feeling. Sometimes when we can't hold on to it, it's okay to let the people around us hold on to that feeling for us. That's what we're here for, for each other. When we ourselves can't hold that hope, let others hold it and pass it along when we're most needed. And the thing about hope is that it lights a fire. It leads to action. It motivates. It brings initiative. And so for me, with this newly revived sense of hope that maybe there was a possibility of love in my life, motivated to work hard at my rehabilitation and my recovery. I, I asked my therapist if we could double uh, the amount of therapy. I ended up completing a school for the blind where I was learning to live as a blind person. It was a 12-month program. I finished it in seven months. And in about 12 months uh, from, the, from the time I left for California, I was ready for my first trip back to Alaska. And at that time, Amber was no longer dating somebody. And so she picks me up at the airport and So now I, that that feeling of hope was more alive and well than ever, and I started to think about what's next, what's after rehabilitation. And it was important to me, if this thing with Amber was possible, that I didn't want her to be with me out of any sense of obligation. I didn't want her to be with me out of any sense of needing somebody to take care of her. I wanted her to be with me on the, on the merit, on, based on my own merits and, and to see a real possibility of spending our lives together. So part of that naturally was, how am I going to provide? What am I going to do for employment? So I started thinking about it. I couldn't go back to, to doing the work I had been doing. It was a lot of driving, and it just required a lot of things that uh, required sight. But I did like working with the kids and families I've been working with, and so I thought maybe I could take that into an office setting and work with them as a, a clinical therapist and help kids and families overcome trauma in their own lives. And so happy to find out that there was a Master's of Social Work program here at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And 
I'll never forget when I got the letter, the acceptance letter that said I've been accepted, but it was conditional upon doing some prerequisites. And one of those was getting a B or better in statistics. <laughs> and the thing about that I was thinking about is like, that seems very visual in nature. Like we're talking about curves and charts and graphs and histograms. Like, how is that going to work? And then the more pragmatic concern set in. You know, I was just new to this whole blind thing, and I was imagining the campus at UAA with its quadplex and all the meandering sidewalks that intersect one another. And I was thinking, how am I going to find the right building? And once I do, how am I going to find the right classroom? And once I do, how am I going to walk in and not sit in somebody's lap? And so, after moving back to Alaska, um, I started working with the Alaska Center for the Blind, and they were teaching me uh, with a cane to, to, to navigate from the bus stop. so many other times in life, you know, you have to set your pride aside and accept the help. And this is an interesting note. I just want to comment because that's a difficult thing for many people to accept the help, to ask for help. And it, my comment on that is it doesn't make any sense because I've accepted a lot of help in my life. And what my experience has been is that when somebody is able to offer help to another person, it actually makes me often do we help somebody else and feel greatly inconvenienced? It's not typically the case. Usually it's, it's a, it's a win-win. Um, it's a side note. <laughs> and it's a part, again, of that interdependence. It's a part of our humanity. And so there, I, I was given help by an engineering student. I walked into the classroom of, of the right class statistics. Um, and then my second year is actualized, and that is that the teachers in the front of the classroom, um, and I'm not able to learn because she's on an overhead projector and I'm just not able to follow her, so I quickly realized that this wasn't going to work for me. And so rather than sitting in statistics, learning statistics, I was in statistics having massive panic attacks. And this is what it was like. Numbness in my arms and legs that felt wobbly, kind of like wet noodles. A very wheezy stomach, sometimes nauseous, heart pounding so hard that it felt like the person sitting next to me in class could have seen my shirt moving. And it sounded like everything was coming at me through a 30-foot long tunnel, very unreal. And I was feeling like I was going to pass out and lose consciousness. And so the conversation in my head went something like this. It was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to pass out. Okay, I should get up and go to the bathroom. No, because if I pass out there, I might fall and hit my head on something, and it could be a while before somebody finds me. That wouldn't be good. So I'll just pass out during class. That would be much better. <laughs> and it was in moments like that, those were the toughest moments. It was in moments like that where what I wanted to do more than anything was to get up with my cane, not say a word, 
I even rationalized that nobody would blame me. Everybody would understand. Nobody would blame me for not being able to get a master's degree as a newly blind person. They would understand. But I didn't give up. And I couldn't. And it took me a long time to really understand what it was that carried me through those most difficult moments. But in the end, So it was me, it wasn't me, it was all of those people who had been there for me, my community of support, who carried me through those most difficult moments, even though they weren't there, even though they had no active role or part in that. And so I got a tutor to learn statistics. And when one tutor wasn't enough, I got two tutors. And I wish I was kidding, but I'm not. When two wasn't enough, I got three tutors to help me learn statistics. And by halfway through the semester, I figured out a way I had my voice recorder on the right side, and I would record these long statistical equations, not in their given order, but their order of operations to make it easier to track with my process. On the left, I had my talking calculator for basic arithmetic, and in the middle, I had my computer with screen reading software so that I could track my work line by line and follow where I was in the long statistical equations and so that the teacher could see my work line by line. I figured out how to use special software packages for statistics so that I could create my own curves and graphs and charts. And by the end of the semester, as Amber and I waited for the grades to post electronically on, on the internet, waiting on pins and needles, I can't express to you the feelings of joy, of accomplishment, of satisfaction, but probably most of all of humility. When not only had I gotten a B in statistics, but somehow I pulled off an A. What's interesting to me is that there's these self-narratives, these stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And I think in life, these are our greatest limiting factor. They're the stories that we tell ourselves that usually go like, well, I, I would do that if I was from a more resourced family. I could do that if I wasn't so overweight. If I was one of the cool people. I could do that if I was maybe just a little bit smarter. We all know these stories. I think we do. And what's interesting is that after this, after completing statistics with an A, fundamentally, the story that I would tell myself changed that day. It changed from a story which was, well, there's only one way to find out, to, if I can do this, I think I can do just about anything. And sure enough, three and a half years later, I graduated with a 4.0 grade for 
most of all, the greatest outcome of it all is that this summer, Amber and I will be celebrating our 11th anniversary. And I have two beautiful children, uh, seven and nine, who are here with us today. By far the best things uh, to have happened to me in my life. And so what have I learned? First of all, I thought that it was the bear that gave me a new way to see and experience life. But for a couple years, I thought that that was a really great, great perspective for home. But then I realized that's actually not true. That the bear certainly took away my old way to see. But that it was truly all of the people who have been there since the beginning, starting with the rescuers, um, all the way through the nurses and the doctors and the rehabilitation specialists, division of vocation, rehabilitation, social security, disability, disability could be true of physical disability, but this is true of anything. Let's face it, there are many things that happen in life that cause people to disengage from life to some degree, that cause people to live their lives with anything less than fully engaged. It could be a car accident, it could be a divorce, it could be your own narrative, your stories you tell yourself about yourself. There are many things that cause us to disengage. And what I've learned that the more I engage in life, whether it's the big things like you know, completing a master's degree or pursuing career goals um, or writing books, or the little things in life, which sometimes are the most important, um, you know, like playing hide-and-go-seek with my kids, like sitting around the campfire and playing guitar and singing songs and howling at the moon with my friends. But the more I engage in life, the bigger my life gets. And that the bigger my life gets, self-sustaining congregation, we are not only dependent on the volunteers who do the work, we are also dependent on contributions from people who enjoy this space and our time together. So please show your appreciation of the generous contribution and support of the work we do and the space we provide. So as we as we begin the questions and answers, I, uh, I'll keep the cue and we'll pass the microphone around. And the one thing that I ask is that person gets close to you, you raise your hand above your head so they can see you and uh, make their way to you. So, uh, Bill.
That's a, that is a great question. Um, so right now, I've actually progressed. I'm actually now the clinical director overseeing all the clinical services and provided to about 250 kids in, in the community, mental health center here in town, families, but not family services, um, which keeps me pretty busy. That and chasing, of course, my own two kids around. Uh, from here, though, I guess, I don't know. I've, I've played with all of those ideas, the idea of a PhD. Thank you so much for your story and for sharing it with us. Um, I just wanted to say that recently I ran into a, a phrase that I realized has been a part of my life for a long time, but it was said first succinctly, and your story tells it as well. And it is, patience is the virtue that is most often rewarded. Not patience, persistence, but that's all right. <laughs> Persistence is the virtue that is most often rewarded. Uh, I had a, a major career change. It wasn't anything as dramatic as yours. But I was 50 years old and everything had come to a halt. And it took me six months to get to the first success that I feel of A in statistics. But I had one file in my book all during that time. It had nothing in it, but it was titled Do we have other questions and comments? Are we so overwhelmed? Oh, Francine. You can always count on me. <laughs> um, I, uh, when I came to Alaska, I was uh, married without any children, whatever, and I had time in my hands, and I wanted to volunteer someplace, and a friend of mine was a physical therapist at the Alaska probably been the, the greatest educational <laughs> experience of my life. Um, two things that, and, and I have also done survival, uh, a series of, of, uh, of survival for the Coast Guard and what have you, so I'm familiar with some of these uh, qualities that you have to have to survive, and one of them is the will to survive, which is having great abundance. And the second one, which I remember at the time, I thought, wow, that's a that is, you know, in other words, you're in a dire strait. You can either give up or you can say, good God, you know, look at where I am now. You know, what, am I, what, am I, what am I going to do? You know, that sort of thing. So that's, <laughs> so I've sort of enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed that. Um, I think I had something else to say, but I don't. Questions welcome. My life is uh, quite literally an open book. Hi, Dan. This is David. How are you? Thank you for telling your story. I really appreciate that. You're up there in front of a whole bunch of people, and I have a question for you that's pretty specific to what um, we do together. Can you speak a little bit to music, its role in your life, the meaning and expression? And, uh, you know, no small question. And, and 
I wish I had about a month to think of an answer. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt uh, music has always been an incredibly important aspect of my life. I started playing piano as a young child uh, in grade school, and at 16, picked up a guitar. Um, and I've always enjoyed and appreciated the way that music does bring people together, whether it's just a small group of musicians sitting on a, a dock under the moon. Or, you know, en masse, when there's 20,000 people um, howling at the top of their lungs uh, in front of some great stage. But I also love the way music weaves communities of people together, brings people like mind and like heart and spirit together. And I'll just share a story, I guess. Um, when I got off the ferry, my first trip to Alaska, So, you know, being in our young 20s and nothing better to do, we got on the fast ferry and, and headed to Skagway. And that night saw the photons uh, play. And wow, it was like hearing my heart and soul music. And, and so then we got off the ferry almost like two months later, uh, again on our way back south in Bellingham. And the first thing we see uh, on a telephone pole was a sign that said, Photon band tonight in Bellingham. So we went, and after the show, we ended up going camping with the Photons, and we made great friends. Um, and then we would see them again several times down in Arizona, um, in New Mexico, and Colorado on their tour. And what's neat was that a year earlier, um, oh, and by the way, uh, that whole time, what the Photons were telling me is, you got to go to Girdwood. You got to go to Girdwood. Check it out. So, when, a year later, when I finally moved back to Alaska after graduating uh, my undergrad, uh, guess where I moved? To Girdwood. And sure enough, I showed up at the place they told me to go to Max's, and it was a homecoming for me for sure. Uh, a community that I could connect to and relate to. And what's amazing, once again, uh, I guess furthermore, was that Amber on her first trip to Alaska, was just driving down south and stopped for gas along the Seward Highway. And some young, vibrant people there were saying, 
you got to go to Max's tonight because there's this band playing. And so sure enough, she showed up at Max's and found the photons and found her home and her community. And so it was that song, that music, you know, that brought Amber and I together um, and something we still enjoy to this day, not just the photons, but you know, music is, is in many ways a church that we like to attend on a regular basis. It speaks to our hearts. So hope that answers some of your questions.
initially, I just knew I had to go fishing again uh, because it was sort of like the getting back on the horse. I knew that if I really wanted to overcome this emotionally, I had to face that or else I would feel in some way personally defeated. I mean, if it had taken fishing away, fishing was always been a really important thing to me. I grew up fishing with my grandfather. He taught me to sit still. So it was important for me to get back out there. And absolutely, it was definitely challenging when I first started getting back out emotionally. I was still dealing with, at the time, a lot of post-trauma symptoms anyway, just in general. But certainly, returning to uh, the waters uh, brought that on. Um, and some, and, and some, some experiences in a very overwhelming uh, way. And the first time I went back to actually the Russian decided not to fish at all, and my friends that I was there with did go fishing, but I sat by myself uh, I was a little, bit, little ways away, and I just took off my shoes and my socks, and I put my feet in the water, and I just sat there on the side of the river, and I tossed pebbles into the water, and I just kind of took in the whole scene, and, and there were times where I would hear a crack in the branch, or a scuffling in the She was perfectly okay. She she escaped unscathed. Um, she did try to run back when the bear started mauling me. Uh, my friend John, uh, you know, gave her a swift kick to the chest and yelled at her to get out of there. She did. She ran 20 minutes, or probably for her a lot less than that. She ran all the way back to the confluence of the Russian and Kenai River, where she, with her own hair standing on end, started barking incessantly at some fishermen who had seen us pass through the area 20 minutes earlier. And they looked at her and said, something's not right. And they recognized her. And uh, they actually followed her to where they found fishing gear and backpacks thrown out on the trail, a hat. And that's when they knew for sure something's not right. Um, and then they found my friend John, who then they were all a part of the initial rescue effort that initially found the scene. Uh, so Maya, in her own way, was a hero of the day. And uh, just a very short story talked about pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone and facing the possibility of success. 
property in California when I was rehabilitating. And uh, I wanted to go outside and enjoy, you know, California. But I was concerned about getting lost because uh, there was nobody else around, nobody home. But I decided I'm going for it. So I went out and found a nice spot out in the garden uh, and sat there taking in the sunshine stuff. And sure enough, couldn't find my way back. And so I started, you know, worrying. I was thinking, okay, how many hours is it going to be before somebody else gets back? Uh, how long am I going to be sitting here? And then I remembered, though, that Maya was, could be outside. Uh, and so I whistled and called for her. And sure enough, she came running over. Uh, and, of course, Maya was not trained to be a guy dog in any form or fashion. But there was one thing that I knew that Maya could do amazingly. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I work with a population that's had, you know, the most horrific uh, life experiences that really one can imagine. Uh, and with that said, uh, when they first come to us, there is no hope. You know, there's just utter hopelessness. And it's one of those situations Self-perpetuating cycle 
no doubt that I miss out on some cues, uh, for sure. But I've never really struggled with it, to be honest. Uh, it's just a, a different attunement. It's just a, a different way of connecting. And so I don't know that I can offer much detail in terms of how I do that, because it's really just my clinical radar. You know, it's my, my spidey senses <laughs> uh, that, that help me. It's very minute uh, inflection and tone and variation. But the other piece to that, though, I'll say, is that because people who have experienced significant trauma, um, almost by definition, in most cases, overwhelmingly, majority of cases, uh, have very poor self-concept, self-esteem. In many cases, I've found that work being completely blind has helped people feel more comfortable in my presence. And it definitely doesn't hurt that I work with a guide dog, because so many times, uh, my guide dog is the better half of my therapy <laughs> and my therapy efforts. Uh, so when I'm failing, my, my dog is there to, to assist and support my endeavors. <laughs> Do we have any more? Yes. Um, there's often a debate, often politically, about helping others. And some see, uh, in some attempts to help others, codependency, enabling behaviors, something counterproductive. Can you, uh, from your experience, talk about the differences between being helpful and enabling? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, first let me just comment that while there are maybe cases and, and specific examples that could be pointed to um, that would indicate in some way perhaps some abuse of the system or some there's a mythology that exists about some hammock by a pool that's government-funded, and it doesn't exist. It's not a life that you or I would want to live. So there's larger systemic issues uh, that aren't being addressed. And if we want to solve the problem of this you know, so-called handout, uh, we need to really look at the, at the larger, more systemic issues uh, But beyond that, and I think more importantly, to me, you're right, this is often a politicized conversation and discussion. But to me, it's, it's, it's not about that. It's not about politics. It's not about one side or the other. To me, it's about values, human, human values in our humanity. And the reality of it is, and it's certainly in a way that my story makes perfectly clear, but I think truth of it is, is that for every single person in this room, for every single person at some point in their, their lives, we are all going to be brought to our knees. We are all going to face situations that are incredibly overwhelming. Whether it's a diagnosis or an un phone call that we just can't handle about a loved one. You know, whatever the circumstances are. And so, we need to create a community that is there to support one social welfare, safety nets that are there to help not just the poor, not just the minorities, but all people, because we are all going to be faced with situations that we cannot deal with alone. That's just being human. And so to me, it's not a political conversation. It's, it's really about our values and about humanity. 
Thank you for your very, very encouraging talk. I mean encouraging in many ways. Uh, not just that you're brave, but because I, it illustrates something that I experienced a long time ago when I was working at the Center for the Blind in California. And the blind people there expressed to me a number of times how sorry they felt for Another thing is it seems to me that as one sense is deteriorated or hurt or impaired in some way, another will grow up, will become stronger, smarter, braver, better able to do things. I don't know whether this is true or not, but it seemed to me that when we went, one day we went to a, a, a potluck they had at the center, and they greeted me at the door by, guess what we're having? They said that I couldn't smell. They felt sorry for me because I was not able to do this. I wondered if you in your experiences have had any inkling of this sort of thing being true, that something apparently that we all have that we don't use to the best ability heightens to compensate for something. It's interesting because it's like if I were to sit in a hearing booth and have a hearing test, I certainly don't hear any better than I did before. But what's markedly different is the way my brain processes and uses that information to create a worldview. And uh, that's one amazing thing. I mean, I think of all the things on this earth, the brain, the human brain may be one of the most fascinating and interesting things on the planet. Um, and because it does have the ability to create these super highways of information, and so much information is used by your eyes and processes just magnificent and huge volumes of information through your visual cortex. And so for me, since I'm not getting any information there, you know, my brain has certainly rewired itself and grown new pathways, new super highways of information uh, coming from, you know, my sense of touch, coming from uh, my sense of hearing. What might, what you might not even hear, or what might sound to you like a background noise, if, if you even notice it at all, uh, might be information for me that is telling me where doorways are, uh, where walls are, uh, which direction the sun is, so I can uh, have a sense of orientation, so I know which way to walk, which way to turn, based on where the sunlight's hitting my face. Um, it, a, a very faint background noise might just be background noise to you, but for me, I, it might be the sound of a carrot being cut on a cutting board. <laughs> so, yes. Thank you, Dan. We have a gift for you. We call it the Thank you. Coveted Cobalt Cup of Conversation. Thank you. And it's a token that doesn't compare in any way with the gift you've given us today, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to say one more thing, if I can. One more thing. And this 
relates back to the theme today of social justice. And it, it, it's, a, it's a, something I've taken from some literature on resiliency. And that is that in this world, you know, we have dandelions and daffodils. And I'm talking about people. Dandelions and daffodils. And the thing of it is, is that for people that we would call resilient, that would be the, those would be the dandelions among us. Because dandelions, you may know, can grow in the most disturbed situations. Bulldozer could come through, and the first thing to pop up would be a dandelion. Very, very resilient and hardy plant. On the other hand, you have your daffodils that take almost perfect environmental conditions to grow and to thrive. They can't handle disturbance at all. And so, as I t- think of resilience and I think of social justice, I think that we should be not concerned with how great the dandelions are, but concerned with creating a world where both dandelions and daffodils can thrive and flourish. Thank you. With that, we can all adjourn to the social room uh, and enjoy the refreshments there. Thank you.